0: Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B36 The Black Stone. One reason Gabal might be a tough fit was that Rome already had a sun god, one practically as old as the city itself. The sun god Sol was brought to Rome by the Sabine king Titus Taddeus during his brief period of co-rule with Rome's legendary founder Romulus. The god's later identification as Sol Indiges marked his status as one of the indigenous gods of ancient Rome. There's always been a lot of confusion in the relationship between Sol Indiges, Elagabal, and the later Sol Invictus. Conventional scholarship has worship of Sol Indiges dying out in the early empire, and Elagabal Gabal somehow paving the way for a new Syrian sun god named Sol Invictus, particularly under the Roman Emperor Aurelian, which, on the surface, has always seemed pretty dubious. I mean, you're going to learn this episode just how popular Elagabal Gabal was in Rome. The idea that he laid the groundwork for Sol Invictus is a pretty tough sell. Don't get me wrong, Aurelian definitely believed that Sol Invictus helped him defeat Zenobia, and afterwards he did visit the Temple of Elagabal, so there's some kind of linkage there. And believe me, we'll cover all this in excruciating detail in the upcoming final story arc. But the idea of Elagabal, or even another Syrian sun god, being welcomed back as the supreme deity of Rome? I'm sorry, but I just don't see it. There is, however, an alternate theory. Based on research performed in the 1990s by Professor Stephen Hidgeman's, rumors of the death of Sol Indiges may be greatly exaggerated iconographic sources like coins reliefs and frescoes show that sol maintained a constant presence all down through roman history like his greek parallel the sun god helios sol's defined by various attributes he always appears as a young beardless man with a sunray nimbus holding a whip or globe Sometimes, but not always, he's also shown riding in a four-horse chariot. Figures with all these elements appear in numerous sources from both the Republic and Empire. There are definite gaps in Sol's appearance on Roman coinage. Nothing, for example, between Mark Antony and Vespasian. But the emperor most associated with restarting the trend was Commodus, who obviously had no connection to Aelicabal. Commodus also revived the title Invictus, an old title of Hercules that he applied to himself. Either way, after Commodus, Sol appeared on Roman coins right up to the time of Constantine. And, of course, it's not just coins— Major imperial monuments clearly featured the Roman sun god. When Vespasian repurposed the Colossus of Nero, it was into a statue of Sol. And Septimius Severus stood in for Sol in his recently built Septizodium. Long story short, Sol Indiges was still on the job, and Rome really wasn't interviewing for a new sun god. Not that any of that mattered in the slightest to Elagabalus. From everything we know, he was a man, well, a fifteen-year-old boy, without the slightest hint of self-doubt. And considering his life, a youth spent in Rome in the Severan court, then high priest of a cult where he was practically worshipped, and, finally, the hero of the military conflict that had won him the empire. Well, you've got to admit, it looked a lot like destiny. From all appearances, his mother, Bassiana, never really tried to talk him down. His grandmother, Julia Mesa, at least took a stab, but her initial attempt was fruitless. If there was anyone who had a real shot, it was Elagabalus's mentor, Ghanes. The man who'd gotten him acclaimed as emperor and led Severan forces to victory tried to impress on Elagabalus the value of temperance and prudence. And he pretty much maintained this stance right up until Elagabalus killed him. In the aftermath, Julia Mesa adopted the role of very silent partner, at least as far as religion and personal behavior were concerned. Wintering in Nicomedia in early 219, Elagabalus learned of several pretenders to the throne— one was Varus, the new legate of the Third Gallic Legion—yes, the same legion that had first declared for Elagabalus. Another was Maximus, the legate of the Fourth Scythian Legion, Septimius Severus's old legion based in Zugma. Dio also says many others revolted, including a Roman fleet docked at Cyzicus. It's not like Elagabalus had done anything to turn the soldiers against him, it was really more an indictment of the age. As Dio puts it, they were encouraged partly by the fact that many persons had entered upon the Supreme Office without expecting or deserving it. The revolts remained isolated and were eventually put down. The only notable outcome was that the Third Gallic Legion was permanently disbanded. By the time he reached Rome, in the fall of 219, Elagabalus was ruling a unified empire. And he likely put on a pretty big show to introduce the Romans to their new supreme deity. I'll just quote Herodian, directly and at length, From his detailed description of a similar occasion. A six horse chariot bore the sun god, the horses huge and flawlessly white, with expensive gold fittings and rich ornaments. No one held the reins and no one rode in the chariot. The vehicle was escorted as if the sun god himself were the charioteer. Elagabalus ran backward in front of the chariot facing the god and holding the horse's reins. He made the whole journey in this reverse fashion, looking up into the face of his god. Since he was unable to see where he was going, his route was paved with gold dust to keep him from stumbling and falling. Herodian also reports that Elagabalus then made the distribution of money customary at the succession of an emperor and staged lavish and extravagant spectacles of every kind. The people were likely entirely on board, and with the praetorians run by Comazone and well paid by Julia Mesa, the senate were unlikely to be a problem all of which left Elagabalus free to execute his real revolution. Rome already held a small temple to Elagabal, erected by Septimius Severus on the west bank of the Tiber. The priests who served there, Tiberius Julius Babilus and Titus Julius Babilus, were both members of the Emocene royal line. The temple also housed a few other Syrian gods, and the priests kept good relations with the Vestal Virgins and other Roman cults. Which was all very nice, but Elagabalus had much, much bigger plans. You see that old temple on the Palatine Hill, right across from the Colosseum? that looks like the perfect place to erect a scaled-down version of the massive sun temple of Heliopolis. The structure he built was 70 meters by 40 meters and entered through a monumental gate approached by stairs, similar to the Acropolis in Athens. The interior was colonnaded with an elevated podium at the far end, holding the conical black stone of Elagabal. Way back in episode B15, I mentioned Warwick Ball's theory that the Black Stone made a seasonal migration between the sun temples of Emesa and Heliopolis. Backing up that theory is the fact that Elagabalus set up a similar arrangement in Rome. Herodian reports that in the suburbs of Rome, the emperor built a very large and magnificent temple to which every year in midsummer he brought his god. The procession was likely associated with the ancient Babylonian Akitu festival, another eastern import by Elagabalus. But it was the main temple that saw most of the action, including regular daily sacrifices by Rome's new priest-king. In Herodian's telling, coming forth early each morning, he sacrificed at least a dozen bulls along with vast numbers of sheep. These he heaped on altars, and heaped up spices of every kind. He also set before the altars many jars of the oldest and finest wines, so that the streams of blood mingled with streams of wine. Elagabalus danced around the altars to music played on every kind of instrument. Women from his own country accompanied him in these dances— carrying cymbals and drums as they circled the altars. The entire senate stood watching, like spectators in a theater. The spices and entrails of the sacrificial animals were borne along in gold vessels, held on high by the praetorian prefects and the most important magistrates. Now, all that sounds like a pretty good reason to set my alarm in the morning But the best thing about the new temple was that it was a one-stop shop for worship. First off, you've got your new supreme deity. That's Elagabal, by the way, not jupiter whats this loseris But also, in a classic display of Eastern syncretism, Elagabalus decided to collect every symbol from every major temple and shrine in the capital and put them all on display in the Elagabalium. What kind of symbols? Well, ones like the statue of Trojan Athena, first brought to Rome by Aeneas, or the sacred shields of the priests of Mars, or the hearth of the Vestal Virgins, or the statue of the Great Mother. I mean, the list just goes on and on. The Historia Augusta even says that The religions of the Jews and the Samaritans and the rites of the Christians were also transferred to this place, in order that the priesthood of Gabal might include the mysteries of every form of worship. Now, one sticky issue did come up. The original plan was for Gabal to get married to Trojan Athena, also known as Athena Palace. But, according to Herodian, the god told Elagabalus that her armor was, how do I put this, a real turn-off. After looking around for a suitable alternative, the emperor settled on the Carthaginian goddess Tanis. Herodian calls her a moon goddess, and suggests the concept of a sun-moon marriage. Though it's not clear who broke the news to her husband, the god baal Hammon. It is known that Elagabalus told the citizens of Carthage to send her cult statue and all the gold in her temple, along with a suitable dowry. I mean, I don't want to pick a number, just, you know, whatever you think is appropriate for the marriage of your local goddess to the supreme god of the universe. I also take PayPal. And speaking of marriage, Elagabalus was also game. Julia Mesa briefly reemerged from her role of severin cash machine to recommend his first wife, the noblewoman Julia Cornelia Paula. But Elagabalus divorced her a few months later when he found a more suitable bride. Who was the lucky lady? A vestal virgin named Aquilia Severa to Elagabalus' thinking, he was a priest and she was a priestess, so their kids were sure to be gods. That had to trump any silly concerns about the whole virgin part of her job. But just to be safe, at around the same time, he also married the goddess Vesta to Elagabal. Elagabalus had eventually married three other women, including an heir of Marcus Aurelius. But it's also pretty clear that he wasn't just fixated on the ladies. His most committed relationship was with his chariot driver, a carrion slave named Hierocles, and he commonly referred to himself as Hierocles' queen. The emperor also supposedly married an athlete from Smyrna named Aurelius Zodicus, and last but not least, Dio reports Elagabalus expressing a desire to have both male and female genitalia. Now, it's 2016 and I live in San Francisco, so pardon me if none of this is particularly shocking. But to the conservative establishment of the Roman Empire, yeah, that stuff's just not gonna fly. Especially galling was Elagabalus's allowing both his mother and grandmother to attend meetings of the Senate. And, if you believe the Historia Augusta, he even established a separate women's only Senate on the Quirinal Hill, though its discussions were limited to matters of female etiquette. Cassius Dio also dumps about a metric ton of salacious stories. But, like with Tiberius and Caligula, I'm going to gloss over the details. Suffice to say that, depending on your perspective, Elagabalus was either a radical icon of transgender, transsexual, and feminist empowerment, or a depraved, self-indulgent hedonist who debased both himself and the empire. Or both. Or neither. Or possibly somewhere in between. It's kind of interesting that none of the sources cover external events during his reign. But it's worth remembering that, while Rome's new priest-king occupied himself with matters of religion and sex, his eastern counterpart, the priest-king Ardashir of Persis, was spending pretty much every spare moment drilling and training the Persian army into a peerless fighting machine. I personally have a lot of fun picturing a split-screen montage of their respective activities. But, hey, no judgments. We'll just see which approach ends up working out best down the line. By 221, all of this was getting pretty old. And, I mean, Elagabalus was only 18. So you're talking the possibility of another, what, 50 years of rule? Julia Mesa knew that was probably not an option. Her bribes to the Praetorians had kept the family in power, but even that approach was becoming untenable. According to Dio, the tipping point came when Elagabalus considered naming his lover Hierocles as his Caesar. Seeing the soldiers were outraged, Julia Mesa tried to talk him out of it, but was threatened that she shouldn't interfere. Like her sister Julia Domna, Mesa needed a backup plan, and fortunately one was readily available. Because Julia Mesa had a second daughter, and she also had a son. And while the sources paint Bassiana as either powerless or indulgent, they give Julia Evita Mamaya far higher marks. According to Herodian, she made sure Severus Alexander was well-educated, kept physically fit, and, above all, taught the value of self-discipline. Which might sound like just so much hot air, but his later actions seemed to bear it out. Apart from promoting his god and promoting his favorites, Elagabalus had little interest in actual governance— which suggests that, for the better part of three years, the empire had really been run by Julia Mesa. One day she approached the emperor to get a little help in managing imperial affairs. Obviously, Elagabalus should keep focusing on the main priority, the greater glory of Elagabal, but maybe Severus Alexander would make a useful Caesar? I mean, if you can't trust your amiable, non-threatening 13-year-old cousin, who can you trust? Elagabalus acquiesced, brought Alexander to the Senate, and soon had him elevated to Caesar. Over the months that followed, Julia Mesa and Julia of Mamaya kept Alexander under very close guard. As Elagabalus slowly realized the truth, He hadn't created a little helper, he'd created a rival. While Julia Mesa affected an air of grandmotherly impartiality, her money to the Praetorians told a very different tale. Soldiers already hostile toward the emperor gained the additional incentive of severin gold, and some began speaking openly of a preference for Alexander— in March of 222, Elagabalus stripped the 15-year-old Alexander of his royal titles and even spread around a rumor that his cousin was dead. The idea was to flush out Alexander's supporters in the Praetorian Guard so they could be purged from the ranks. Except pretty much all the Praetorians screamed bloody murder and demanded Elagabalus produce his cousin instantly and unharmed. In fact, they even went on strike, refusing to leave the Praetorian camp until their demands were met. To Elagabalus, this was a simple labor dispute, a time to grant a few concessions, pay a few bribes, and reassert his authority. He put Alexander in the imperial litter, along with himself and his mother Bassiana, and the anxious trio set off for the Praetorian camp. In the spirit of reconciliation, maybe Elagabalus let Alexander call shotgun, or maybe even let him pick the radio station. You can picture one of those ominous scenes where the litter comes inside the Praetorian camp, then the doors slowly creak shut. Herodian says they were taken to the temple— Which temple, he doesn't say, but given their long history, it may have been a temple to the Severan royal cult. If so, busts of one or both mothers of the camps, Julia Domna and Julia Mesa, may have been present to watch. Emerging from the litter, Alexander was met with cheers and applause, while Elagabalus and Bassiana were totally ignored. For someone who'd spent years as the center of the Roman universe, the slight was absolutely infuriating. Elagabalus started demanding that every single Praetorian who'd cheered for his cousin be immediately arrested and punished. And, in the long history of imperial missteps, this rocketed Elagabalus right to the top. In Herodian's beautifully concise description— Considering the occasion ideal and the provocation just, they killed Elagabalus and his mother. Cassius Dio supplies the grim coda. Their heads were cut off, and their bodies, after being stripped naked, were dragged all over the city. The woman's trunk was cast off in some corner, while his own was thrown into the Tiber, while most of Elagabalus's favorites met similar fates, the main exception was the Praetorian prefect Comazone. His subsequent role as city prefect hints at prior collaboration with Julia Mesa. One of the main victims of the inaugural purge wasn't actually a man, but a god And if the black stone of Ayla Gabald entered Rome like a lion, you'd better believe it left like a lamb. Under a canvas tarp, on a rickety cart, drawn by a few mangy horses in the middle of the night. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, Alexander probably got a tracking number, but he probably didn't spring for a ton of insurance. Oh, and that whole thing about Alexander also being a priest of Elagabal? Yeah, let's just keep that on the down-low. On the flip side, to the citizens of Emesa, the whole thing was a big win-win. The elevation of Alexander meant there was still a severin on the throne, which pretty much guaranteed imperial patronage. But the Emesenes also got back the object that was both their tribal identity and cash cow. Ela Gabal, the former supreme god of the empire, by the way, was once again appearing live and in person at his local temples in Emesa and Heliopolis. As an added bonus, Emesa'd once again have a local high priest. The choice was fairly obvious— the eldest male heir of the priestly line not currently serving as roman emperor uranius antoninus the 33-year-old grandson of the brother of julius bassianus and distant cousin of caracalla and geta likely took up the role by early 223 if there were any clouds on the emesine horizon they were distant and vague ones at most Rumors of some sort of brewing Parthian conflict. Not between two rival princes, but between two rival powers. More than a revolt, not quite an invasion, it was all pretty hard to nail down. But it's likely Uranius heard of at least one prominent figure, a powerful Persian warlord named Ardashir.